The Grazadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson, and I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And I'm joined once again today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who's the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we've listened to some fascinating uh, guests over the last couple of months. Uh, Tell us who we can look forward to today. We're going to be hearing from Priscilla Stewart-Jones, who's the Senior Vice President of Human Resources for McKesson Corporation's U.S. Pharmaceutical Group. This is an $80 billion business with operations in 31 states and Puerto Rico. So she has some really amazing responsibilities overseeing the development and implementation of human capital strategies for McKesson. I'm sure that's right. Well, let me invite our listeners to sit back and relax and to enjoy this conversation with Priscilla Stewart-Jones, Senior Vice President, Human Resources for McKesson Corporation, U.S. Pharmaceutical Group. Well, today in our Dean's Executive Leadership Series podcast, we have with us Priscilla Stewart-Jones, and Priscilla is the Senior Vice President of Human Resources for McKesson Corporation. She's been with McKesson since 2001 and was promoted to her current position in 2006. And if you're not familiar with McKesson, it is one of the oldest and largest healthcare companies in the United States, uh, currently ranked 18th among the Fortune 500, and I believe it's second or third largest company in California. Is that right, Priscilla? That's correct. Wonderful. Well, welcome. We're glad to have you with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome. Well, it's such an interesting time to be in healthcare and to be in human resources. Uh, but before we kind of get into that side of what you do, tell us just a little bit about Uh, kind of your career journey and how you got to the position you're in at McKesson. I'd be happy to share some insights. It's kind of been an interesting roller coaster ride for me. I started off thinking I would actually be a lawyer uh, and then decided instead of going into law school, what I really enjoyed doing was being in human resources. And I started in human resources even when I was in college at Memphis State University. Um, And that was a great experience for me. And so from there, I just continued to move within various organizations, always in human resources, but really finding my passion in one of two areas, Um, labor relations. So at one point, I spent a lot of time um, as a chief spokesperson and also negotiated uh, from a labor contract perspective, uh, but always on the side of the employer. And then um, just mergers and acquisitions, which also was a second passion of mine and did a lot of that um, and also uh, did some of that for McKesson. And then just a generalist in terms of really leading and engaging and developing employees and leaders within an organization. That's always been my passion. So from Memphis State, I actually started in human resources at uh, Union Planners Bank. And from Union Planners Bank, I had hospitality and from hospitality to consumer packaged goods and from consumer packaged goods um, into exactly where I am today, which is in healthcare for McKesson. So um, I won't say how many years <laughs> I've been in ask. please. <laughs> but let's just say I've seen a lot of changes going from personnel to human resource and, and all of the iterations therein. So um, it's been a great experience thus far. 
my academic background is actually in organizational behavior and human resource management, and I actually wanted to be an attorney when I first went to college, <laughs> too, and ended up in the academic world. But, but clearly, over the years, as you know, the role of uh, kind of the personnel human resources function has changed dramatically in companies and has become much more of a strategic uh, role in the organization. Talk a little bit about that evolution and why you think that's happened and, frankly, why you think it's so important. Absolutely. Well, clearly, um, back in the 70s and 80s, and so I'm dating myself somewhat, (laughs) it was more of an administrative support role, and that was the personnel, so the records administration and more of the compliance more than anything else. Uh, But certainly companies and the challenges from a business perspective that changed starting really in the mid to late 80s. Um, There were so many dynamics and organizations were really forced to look at talent differently and they needed individuals that could help them think about not only the talent needs for today, but strategically the talent needs for the future. And they didn't have those skill sets in-house. So they started really looking to HR professionals and candidly, the personnel individuals had to change their skill set in order to really become strategic human resource professionals, really focused initially more on the talent development, leadership development, competency development, but even from there to organizational alignment and structure, um, restructuring the awards and rewards and benefits and cash incentive programs to align to meet business strategic objectives. And so they saw that there was value in having someone that could focus on human capital assets, but really aligning those from a business needs perspective. And that's really, from my perspective, the evolution of HR, but it has taken at least a good 20 Mm -hmm. years. Arguably, we are still evolving. We are not done. Um, A lot of the both external um, pressures, both in terms of the volatility and the dynamics in the marketplace, um, the changes in terms of the demographics in the U.S., but not just the U.S., in the world, the fact that we are more global now than not. um, So there are needs from a different perspective in terms of not only generational considerations, but also the influence of technology and the influence of the cultural dynamics and understanding how you manage and navigate with different cultures and to do so effectively in different environments. That just requires a different mindset and a mind shift even for the HR professionals of today. So uh, we are still evolving. Yes, I think you can see dramatic differences even in companies today about how strategic they make that human resources function. And let's talk a little bit about what's going on today in the business community. Let's talk sort of generally before we talk more particularly about McKesson and the healthcare arena. Uh, But with the economic climate as it is today, what particular challenges and opportunities does that give you as a human resources professional in trying to navigate that and do what's best for the organization? You know, companies are laying people off Mm -hmm. right and left and in mass quantities. Mm -hmm. Um, What kind of challenges does that pose for organizations and how do you help a company get through a time like this uh, and come out on the other side sort of better positioned with your people? I'd say it's really threefold, first and foremost, to your point around the challenges for today. So you have the economic realities. And as such, as a business leader, as well as a human resources professional, you're looking at it both from the human capital standpoint, but also from the business standpoint. And helping the company leverage the assets and organize and structure in a way so that they will identify the talent that is already there being clear that they actually still need to invest for the future so that they are not cutting to the extent that that will have an impact on their future needs and their future opportunities. 
also aligning with the senior leaders and focusing on leadership development because it also means leading differently today than we have in the past. And that requires also thinking differently and a paradigm shift around what are the leadership skills necessary to be effective in the future. So in the past, we've always talked about having a seat at the table. I would argue that we actually have a very important pivotal seat at the table. So it's looking at what are the business strategies for the future and then what are the capital, human capital needs in order to achieve those strategies. It might mean a different competency set. It might mean growing talent. It might mean um, acquiring talent. Even in today's environment, there is still a need to look at the talent opportunities for the future and getting the to focus on that, especially if they are challenged in terms of revenue streams and or other expense management considerations can be very, very challenging, but it is something that an HR leader can do and can do very successfully if they're focused on the right business initiatives, they're using the right terminology, they have the right financial analytics and metrics that they are using to align with the business leaders. You can do it. It is not easy, though. It is very, very challenging. Let's kind of drill down to a different level. Uh, Currently, there are certainly lots of people looking for jobs because there have been so many uh, layoffs. There are people who want to shift industries, and it's a challenging time to do that. What advice would you give or do you give people in that kind of a situation when you're in a situation like this where the economy is so challenging and some uh, industry segments are struggling so much? How does someone go about trying to you know, work in that context and find new opportunities? Well, three things. Um, I'd say first, companies are still hiring, some companies. Mm -hmm. So do your research and identify those industries and the companies within those industries that are still doing well. And you can tell that by their balance sheet, you can tell that by their proxy statements, and you can tell that by the fact that they are actually hiring. So whether it's ads or whether it is job fairs. Mm -hmm. So that would be one way. Secondly, I'd suggest really taking stock and analyzing yourself in terms of what you want to do when you grow up. This actually could create an opportunity for you to go back and revisit, well, I really wanted to be a lawyer, so maybe now is the time for me to consider going back to school. And I know that in and of itself can be somewhat frightening Mm -hmm. and and scary, Uh, but two years ago, I went back to school and completed my master's degree. And I know that's a little different when you're in the context of not having a job, but that's also an opportunity where you can continue to build your skill set and also your toolkit so that you can make yourself much more marketable. Think of it as differentiation in the marketplace, and you need to be able to do that. So that would be um, the second thing that I would say. The third, network. Um, Make sure you are leveraging the relationships that you have, and you have a lot of them. If you really just sit down and have some uninterrupted time and make a list of all the individuals that you know, whether it's through work, through um, school, through church, through different organizations that are still gainfully employed, and then start leveraging that social network so that you can find opportunities. Because at times, the key opportunities aren't always going to be advertised. And sometimes that networking opportunity will create even more than you would have gotten attending a job fair. So those are the three things that come to mind immediately. Great advice for folks. You know, one of the things I hear from a lot of people, and you can certainly either agree or disagree with this, uh, is that healthcare generally tends to be a bit more recession-proof than some other industries. I don't know if you're really seeing that this time around. I think everybody's feeling the pain of this downturn. But talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on in the healthcare industry from a human resources perspective. And then kind of related to that, if people are interested in transitioning to healthcare and may not have that background, how do they go about doing that? 
Well, it's interesting. I won't say healthcare is recession-proof, but I would agree that um, while we've not been insulated, we are probably on the back end of being impacted because the reality is for healthcare, people still get sick mm -hmm. regardless of what's happening in the economy. They still need treatment. They still need their medications. Uh, but yet, we are now starting to see the impacts because with the hundreds of thousands of millions of people, really, that are being laid off, then they don't have necessarily insurance coverage, or I've talked to some people recently where they are not following their prescribed regimen, and instead of taking their medication on a daily basis, they're taking a pill every other day. Um, so therefore, that has a ripple effect both up and down the continuum of healthcare. So we are starting to see impacts. We also had seen impacts even before this with the doctor shortages and the nurses uh, and the shortages in the medical arena, just in general. So not recession-proof, but still one of the industries that probably has been, to this point, hit the least. Um, but we are starting to see those challenges. But nevertheless, I still think that there is probably less of an impact in healthcare than most of the other industries, with maybe few other exceptions. Having said that, if someone's interested in healthcare, there are a couple of options. When I go back to going to school, if you're interested in being a clinician or if you're interested in doing something that is actually going to be more of a provider, um, then that would require certifications, sure. that would require um, education beyond just doing an internship. Um, but secondly, you could also volunteer and do an internship. You could do some work in organizations where you would be able to get exposure and some experience um, while you are deciding what you really want to do. I would also highlight that the healthcare industry and all of the companies on that continuum, they also have all of the normal functions. They have accounting and they have marketing and they have human resources. Um, so they do have functions, business development, sales positions. So they do have positions. And I would say that the healthcare industry in general is also broadening their perspective on the skill set and the experience set that a person can transfer even into healthcare. So there are a lot of options for a person to pursue healthcare positions, but what they need to do is to do their research first and to create their marketing plan and then really decide how they are going to differentiate themselves from the thousands of resumes mm -hmm. that are submitted either directly or via email um, to all of the healthcare organizations. So I'd say do your research first and put together your mm -hmm. marketing plan. So I don't know how much you look at resumes yourself versus you have staff that do it, but what kinds of things stand out for you? I mean, what, what are the like big mistakes you see and then what are the things that really show you that this person gets it and is the kind of person we want to look at? Being crystal clear in your resume in terms of your objective, being concise, um, being very specific about the experiences that you have, but more so from the standpoint of the results that you achieved. Um, general pros and descriptors, while nice, aren't necessarily going to make you stand out. And most companies are looking for individuals that really have a proven track record of results. So if you can emphasize successes that you've had and give specific examples in in a quantifiable way, such as um, a certain percentage of increase or a dollar amount of sales or um, salesperson of the year or president's recipient or those sorts of achievements, mm -hmm. you want to call those out because those are the individuals that we are looking for, individuals that have a proven track record. And really show that they can get the job done and have Absolutely. had success. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Let's step back a little bit and talk healthcare more generally from a bit of a policy perspective. And mm-hmm. I know you're not a policy person, but uh, but I'm sure you have some opinions about this. Uh, I mean, clearly, healthcare and how we provide it nationally or don't provide it nationally is a huge topic of conversation, and particularly with. Uh, the, after the presidential election, mm-hmm. it's clearly a significant platform of President Obama. Uh, what do you see as some of the, the key opportunities there to help bring the right kind of reform to the health care system that can help meet some of the real challenges of, uh, that are out there in terms of access and other things? Well, I think we have a little bit of a start already because we do have an administration that is very focused on this. And as you know, there was a recent um, legislation that was passed regarding um, a stimulus package or a portion thereof Mm -hmm. that's dedicated to IT within the healthcare Mm -hmm. arena. Um, That's a start. It is not going to be the final, but certainly having greater connectivity between all of the players along the healthcare continuum. So the payers, the clinicians, um, the insurers. Um, So having more connectivity. Also, anything that will drive innovation, because obviously if you drive innovation, that will increase efficiency, which should, at least in theory, reduce costs. So there are some things that we can do to better align and connect all of the players along the healthcare continuum. There's also a lack of alignment around incentives. Um, each component of healthcare, if you look at the players, they really do operate very independently, and there aren't incentives to have them aligned. Um, they don't have the same objectives and goals, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have the same uh, reimbursement structures or payment structures. So there are a lot of things that we can do or that the government can help us do to really align very, very differently than we are aligned today. And I think there are some things that could be done without necessarily a wholesale change in the structure that we have today. A lot of discussion about a single-payer approach, which some countries have. Um, But some of those countries, when you talk to the uh, people that live there and experience those systems, they would say, but I had to wait two years for the hip replacement. Um, Or my tax base is about 50% of of my salary. So it may not necessarily work in our environment. Then you have other examples in other countries like Germany and Belgium, where they have a different structure. So at this point, I don't have, as you said, I'm not a healthcare expert, but my opinion is I think we will have a hybrid system that will work, but I think it will also start with better alignment of incentives, greater connectivity, um, more focus on IT and on innovation. I think if we can start in those four arenas, we will actually have more impact. So that's what comes to mind. And what role do business people have from your perspective in trying to influence that process? I mean, all companies are affected by what happens in the healthcare. It's not just people like McKesson, companies like McKesson that are in that industry. Every company in the country is impacted by what's going on in the healthcare system and should be paying attention to this discussion. Uh, just from your viewpoint and kind of watching this sort of from the inside, what can companies do to have a voice in that process and to 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 help move it forward in a productive way that meets needs but also is attentive to kind of the business views as well. Well, there are a couple of options. Uh, Most immediately, if it's a company that has a public affairs department or function, 
hopefully they are already engaged in the debate as well as trying to provide some suggestions and input regarding policies, working directly with the lawmakers, with Congress uh, in any form or fashion that's appropriate for their company. And I think that is happening probably more today than ever before. The rising cost as well as the challenges around quality and error reduction and those sorts of things really are putting this on the forefront for every business. Employers are paying 29% more today than they did five years ago. So there are lots of incentives for employers, for companies to really put this as a high priority for their initiatives. So one is through um, public affairs or working directly. If they don't have public affairs, they can still, through their relationships with their congressional representatives, they can still make their um, presence known, their concerns known, their recommendations known. They also should be looking at programs for their employees in terms of how do they educate their employees? How do they also look at other options for their employees that will give them a voice and give them insight into some of the challenges? Sometimes it's not just the company, but it's all of the constituents making their voices heard that can also help to influence both the debate, but more importantly, the outcome regarding the solutions. I'm going to change tax just a little bit as we have a few minutes left here in our discussion to talk a little bit more about your uh, style as a leader and, and how you approach the work you do in a very large corporation. Uh, at Pepperdine, we our mission in the business school is to develop value-centered leaders and to advance responsible business practice. So I always like to ask our Dean's Executive Leadership Series speakers about you know the values that drive them as a leader and, and maybe even a little bit about sort of where those values in, came from for you, uh, because it's always interesting to hear kind of the perspective of our speakers on that particular issue, because it's so close to our heart as a school. All right. Well, I have um, also a very, very personal thought around values and leaders and what that means, especially in today's environment, because as you read the newspaper, there's so many examples that would indicate that we aren't having leaders utilizing values that really are representative of us um, as a country and frankly from lots of different perspectives. My father was a minister so I grew up in an environment where values were important yes. uh, even from my earliest um, recollections it was always do the right things do unto others not only as you would have them do unto you but as they would want to be done unto them be respectful um, follow through on what you say you're going to do integrity 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 so that started with mm-hmm. me very early on in life and continues to resonate with me today and I'd say number one on my list is lead with integrity. And the integrity also means being transparent. It also means communicating. It also means making sure that that is something that is forefront in everything you do. Uh, With McKesson, we actually have as part of our values, it is called I Care, and it stands for integrity. It stands for customer-centered. It stands for accountability, respect, and excellence. That really resonated with me when I interviewed with the company because, candidly, it was very similar to what I had heard when I was growing up as a child. It also really does influence decisions that we make, not only with our employees, but also externally with our customers. And that resonates with me in terms of leadership. I mentioned earlier earlier today, especially given today's environment, is no longer leading as usual. So it's not business as usual, so therefore it's no longer leading as usual. And it calls for us today more than ever to have intestinal fortitude, to really lead by example, and also to make sure you're leading with integrity in everything that you do. So part of our particular uh, mantra is 
iCare is really built into not only our decisions, but it's also built into our rewards. It's built into our evaluation process. So it is not just something that's on a placard that's posted on the board. But for me as an individual, that's really important because that's also how you foster, I think, followership. That's how you foster trust and confidence. And for a lot of of people, especially in today's times of uncertainty and volatility, they want confidence. They want trust that their leaders Mm -hmm. know what's going on and also that their leaders are being truthful and that there is a trusting environment and that there is transparency. So um, as you can tell, I've got some passion around (laughs) this. Well, certainly. (laughs) And I'm sure your preacher father is proud of uh, the way you've grown up and the way you speak about these values now. (laughs) I think he is, as as is my mother. But um, for me, that's really important. Again, there are just so many examples today where you see just the opposite. And I think you can also draw a direct correlation to the failings of those companies, not Mm -hmm. just of the leaders, but also of the companies. And so I think there is a direct correlation, and that's really critical. You know, as a business school, we, we and as business schools generally, certainly at Pepperdine, there's a lot of discussion around how you, can you influence values, uh, can you influence character once people get to the age at which they go back to get MBAs, and certainly at the age at which they would begin to work at a, a company like McKesson. You talked about incentive systems. You talked about you know, embedding that in the culture of the company and the fabric of the company. What's your view on the role we can play both as educational institutions and as companies in sort of influencing or, you know, bringing out in people those right kinds of values? And it's, it's a fairly controversial question once people get to sort of adulthood. Exactly, in terms of whether you are hardwired and therefore um, unable to change. But I really believe that you can influence how people think. And if nothing else, what I have found is once they are clear about the importance for them, how does it translate into their career? How does it translate into them being successful? How does it translate into them being viewed by leaders to potentially be on the fast track for a leadership role within the organization? As long as there is the environment that supports values and it is actually embedded in the culture and reflected and demonstrated in the actions of the leader and the environment, if you can show that connection, I think you can influence their thinking. So even if ultimately, and I'm not a psychologist obviously, but even if ultimately they are hardwired and they can't make wholesale changes, they can make behavioral changes in terms of what they say and how they act. That they can do, and I think um, both in schools as well as in organizations, we have to show what's in it for them, why is it important, and how will it translate in terms of helping them be successful within the organization and also for them personally. And I think if we can show that direct connection and have many examples, again, I go back to Uh, the newspaper and usually what we hear on the radio, TV, to read in the news, unfortunately, are all the negatives. Mm -hmm. We need to spend just as much time highlighting the positive examples that show here is really the benefit of actually demonstrating the values and walking the talk. And also, again, what's in it for them? What's the personal benefit? I think if you can do that, then that will help them think differently around their behaviors, even if you don't necessarily completely do a wholesale change in the wiring. And I would argue that most people in most companies are trying to do the right things and live by the right values. It's just un- it's unfortunate that some don't, and those are the ones that tend to get the headlines and make it appear that it's more broad-based a- exactly. than it is. But exactly. We exactly. certainly have responsibility to continue to try to move people 
down a, a good path on those values and running businesses appropriately. I agree with you. I would also say that they should be very, very selective about the organizations mm -hmm. in which mm -hmm. they choose to join or participate yes. with. Because if they get inside the organization and find that the environment does not support their value structure or what they know to be right, then they should leave. Mm -hmm. Then they should leave. A tough choice to make, particularly in an in economy like this. But we see lots of examples of people who didn't make that choice that certainly regret it. Exactly, later exactly, on. exactly. Yeah. Unless they're in a position of, of authority so that they can influence mm -hmm. exactly. a cultural change. And if that's the case, then I would challenge them to take on that responsibility. Which takes a lot of courage, a value that's important to talk about in a situation like that. Intestinal fortitude, <laughs> absolutely I like that correct. Too. correct. <laughs> well, as we wrap up our discussion today uh, and, and finish our, our interview, you know, just reflecting back on your experiences, both personally and as a in the as a human resources professional. Uh, if you had, you know, two or three kind of words of advice or suggestions for our listeners, many of whom uh, are working professionals, some of whom are students, uh, that will really help them to be successful in their career, given what you've seen through the years from a human resources perspective, what might those two or three kind of words of advice be? The first one is know the business. And as someone explained to me, it is uh, follow the money trail, both from the inside in terms of the company's view, but also from the view of the competition and also from the view of the customer. So know the business. Secondly, find a good mentor and sponsor. And I make the distinction. The mentor is the teacher and the coach, but the sponsor is also the advocate and also markets you at times when you may not be aware that they are marketing or sponsoring you. I would also say make sure that you have values and that you live by and walk those values in the business environment. So for me, those would be the first three things that I would say for someone in order to be successful. The one, though, that really is our overarching, and that is you've got to deliver results. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't deliver results, you can have a mentor, you can have a sponsor. You probably won't have a sponsor if you're not delivering these <laughs> results. Not for long, anyway. <laughs> exactly, not for long. Um, you can know the business, but if you really want to be successful, you must have results because that's what gets you noticed and that's what gets you a seat at the table. Not from a human resources perspective, that's any perspective. Last, take risk. Mm -hmm. You've got to take risk. Um, planful risk, but risk nonetheless. So those would be my words of advice. It's really putting the whole package together exactly. and making it all work. Well, it's been so good visiting with you, Priscilla. We really appreciate your time, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, Linda, that was certainly an insightful uh, interview. Well, we certainly learned a lot about the pharmaceutical industry and really about managing people in a very complex industry that's changing rapidly today. Certainly, yeah. Well, tell us who is next. On May 12th, we will round out the Dean's Executive Leadership Series for this year with Elizabeth Lowry. She's the Vice President of Environment, Energy, and Safety Policy for General Motors. Let me invite our listeners who are enjoying these podcasts to subscribe by going to bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells, that's D-E-L-S, or let me invite you to go to our YouTube channel or iTunes uh, to find these webcasts and podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening. 
Why is Pepperdine University's Grazio Dio School of Business and Management considered the smart way for working professionals to earn an MBA? Well, first and foremost, Forbes magazine ranks Pepperdine's fully employed MBA program among the top 20 business schools for return on investment. So financially, it's very smart. And Pepperdine's program is built around real-world curriculum, not just theory, so students can apply what they learn in class at the workplace the next day. So now, does earning an MBA from one of the most highly regarded business schools in the world sound like a smart move to you? Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management. The smart business decision. And Pepperdine also offers a top-ranked executive MBA program.